Hello, welcome back to IVFU. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time. I'm excited for you to meet Brooke Kingston, a woman living child-free after infertility and loving it. She's also been extremely active with Resolve.org, which is a vital support and information organization where you can find all paths to family making. So for those of us who know that dark tunnel where we wonder if we should keep going or stop and choose a different path, Brooke is a shining light up ahead and a chance to understand a whole new meaning of happiness and peace. I was thinking I would go and sit on the futon instead of in my chair that's weeks when I move. Oh, completely. That's a good idea. Cozy up on the futon. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm so excited that you're excited. But are you comfy now? You're on your futon? Yes, I'm comfy now. Life is good. (laughs) So I just want to kind of start with a little bit of an intro. Uh, My first question is, how old are you? I am 39. 39. I turned 40 this summer, yep. Oh, coming up on the big 4 Yes, yes. <laughs> but 39, so you are young. You are young to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm old, so <laughs> everyone's young to me. Um, and what, what do you do for a living and what does your husband do for a living? I'm an accountant and he is a plumber. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you guys are, you like to say childless, not by choice, um, which, oh, no, I'm sorry. You are child free, not by choice. That's why you started to stop me there. Correct. <laughs> what to you are the differences? So the big thing for me is that child free um, implies that it's a positive thing. Childless feels like a very negative mm. um, situation. And so I just feel like child free, not by choice or child free after infertility expresses that we made the choice to move on as a family of two. And that is part of our healing process. And it's a positive choice for us. I love that. And and I also, I quoted you here, you said, we all feel empowered when we are in charge of our choices. Yep, exactly. And, yeah. And I think that's such an amazing way of putting it. And, and you're right. It's child-free. It's not by choice in that you woke up as a baby and said, I will never have children, but it's by right. choice in that you came to a turning point and you said, this is the choice that we're making. And owning that is very, it is very empowering. It is. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I wanted to kind of go back a little bit. You told me that you and your husband, ironically, you guys met at a baby shower. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Which is amazing. That yeah. is too funny. We um, did. Yeah. And that was in 2008, you said? Yes. And what was that meeting like? Did you see each other across a crowded (laughs) baby cake or what happened? (laughs) I just blew him away with my knowledge and, you know, baby trivia. We were playing baby Jeopardy and, you know, I just nailed every question. (laughs) I think we both have similar feelings about baby showers is what I'm I'm feeling here. Yeah. Yeah. And did you guys talk at the baby shower or you just kind of were eyeing each other across the room? We were just eyeing each other. He's six foot five and heavily tattooed. And so he's he's hard to miss, but I did (laughs) notice him at the baby shower and he noticed me and we both said something to the expectant mother and I was like waiting and waiting for him to reach out and contact me and he didn't. So I (gasps) went and found him on MySpace. (laughs) We are in 2008. Yeah. And this is amazing. We're deep in 2008. So yeah. Vintage social media. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then let's see. So we first date was in early June and we were engaged in January. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, that's soon. That is yeah. soon. We that's got married in October of 2009 and started trying in April of 2010. That is soon. So, so did you always know you wanted kids? Was this, were you like, we got to get on this right away or what was the plan? Yeah, I think I always figured I would be a mom. You don't ever think like it'll be hard, obviously. Right. <laughs> we're told yeah, from exactly. a very young age that <laughs> if you look at someone the wrong way, you'll end up pregnant. Yeah, I think we were both just kind of like, let's do this. <laughs> so, wow. So we tried with good timing for about a year. And at that point, I got a referral to see a specialist. And she gave me that with no question. She <laughs> realized I was obviously very well versed. I was on the bump and talking about fertility and making babies like pretty much all the time. Wow. Yeah. You're doing <laughs> your homework for sure. <laughs> yeah. This so, is not well, casual. Yeah. Yeah. So we wow. went and got the testing done and I knew I had a shorter luteal phase, um, which is the time between ovulation and menstruation. Oh, um, okay. And that's relatively easy to correct. Usually vitamin B under a doctor's supervision hmm. will correct it. And then we got my husband's test back. And that was where we discovered that we were really in some trouble <laughs> trying to conceive. And and what was the problem at his end? So when they're examining sperm, they're looking at three things. They're looking at the count. Mm -hmm. They're also looking at the morphology, which is the shape. And then they're looking at motility, which is, are they moving? Mm. Um, and you know, people don't realize that the male body produces so many sperm that not all of them are going to be perfect. <laughs> you know, we right. see, you know, the picture of like this perfect sperm with one tail swimming into an egg and, you know, they're just, they're making so many that they're not actually all good sperm. Mm -hmm. Um, but we had very low count and most of them were misshapen. Um, we didn't have any like very low forward motility. So, we kind of were working with effectively azospermia, which is the absence of sperm. So, oh, wow. Okay. It was <laughs> quite low in terms of yeah. counts. What did that feel like when you got that information? We got the information back at different times. I don't remember when we got mine, but we got his testing back the day after my 30th birthday. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, that was kind of that was yeah. devastating. Yeah. Um, to it's get hard that enough new. turning 30, let alone getting that kind of information. Yeah. 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 And was there that moment of like, we're going to have to change course here? Or did you have a conversation, a little summit meeting in the kitchen? Or what? <laughs> how did it shake down? Yeah, because I'd been doing, you know, so much research and knew what they were testing for and knew the parameters that they'd be looking for. I knew it was bad. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was... Um, a hard conversation to have when I came home because I, you know, took the call at work, unfortunately, and came home. It felt very, very dismal. And to have to tell him that where this is not yeah. looking very good. And did you I, have sort of options in mind already when you told him or, you know, where was your head when you were telling him that? Were you more worried about him? or uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely was worried about him. We had decided that we were going to do three IUIs. Mm -hmm. Um IVF felt like very far out of reach, not only cost wise, but just, you know, it's, it's a big gamble and a lot of money to spend. And it's just for a chance to possibly get pregnant. Yeah. And it's very and invasive too. Extremely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of decided, I mean, we'd had quite a few talks up to that point. They're all kind of a blur now, almost 10 years later, <laughs> but um, we decided that, that would be our line in the sand and getting those counts 
you know, you can do some lifestyle changes. And we tested again about six months later, I think it was, and it hadn't changed at all. Mm-hmm. Well, so. and it's also another thing that really touched me about your story is there is I think very little attention and very little compassion paid to male infertility. Correct. And you can not ever know that it's the male end of things that it, the male end of things. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I am 12 sometimes. Um, But, you know, you, you wouldn't know. And so I think there's two things to that. One is that the woman can be overburdened with the, you know, maybe the guilt or the um, damaged, let's say, Um, Mm self-image. But also that men aren't getting the support that they need very often um, because either they don't know it or they, it's hard for them to open up about something like that. It's very, you know, stigmatized. And yeah, the assumption is definitely that it's something that the woman did. Right. Um, or <laughs> I try to be more inclusive with my language, the person with the uterus. Um, oh, yes, the person with the uterus. <laughs> How 2021 uh, of you, Brooke. That was very oh. well said. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, and there is a lot that can go wrong. We've got most of the parts. We've got the uterus, the ovaries, the mm-hmm. fallopian tubes. There's, you know, a lot that can go wrong. But there is just this assumption that all men are virile and all men are fertile. And right. when that doesn't happen, it can be pretty isolating. And a lot of people don't talk about it. But when you break down the causes of infertility, it's roughly 30% female, 35% the male, and then the rest is either combination or unexplained. Wow. That's interesting. So it's a lot more common than we think. Yeah. Yeah. So now once you get this news, and, you know, originally you said three IUI, obviously Mm -hmm. now you have this new piece of information. What was that decision like? What, What were the options at that point? Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot going on in those six months. We were doing some lifestyle changes and we were kind of thinking about things. And we knew from speaking with our reproductive endocrinologist, you know, how many sperm we needed for it to, you know, be worthwhile to do Mm -hmm. an IUI. And so we were just hoping that we would get there. And also, I think you told me, I just want to say for people who might be thinking it, you thought about sperm donation or you didn't think about sperm donation because Dan wasn't comfortable with it. And I think you told me he that you were fine with that, right? Yeah. Um, and I was also kind of thinking about other alternatives to parenting. We did talk about adoption. We didn't really feel called to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it can be a really daunting process as well. Mm -hmm. And it can be quite expensive for, you know, an opportunity to maybe be chosen as a parent. And for us, fostering definitely didn't quite feel right. I I have a big heart for families who foster, but um, I couldn't imagine, you know, having to possibly give a child that I'd bonded with back. Mm -hmm. Um, So that didn't feel like the right choice. And then I started thinking about, well, what if we were a family of two? And I happened to find a book called Sweet Grapes by a couple that had also chosen to be a family of two. And in reading it, so many of my questions and fears were addressed and answered that I kind of started to feel a little bit more comfortable with that being a possibility. Mm -hmm. And so after the six months when we retested again, we didn't really have any better results. We talked a lot about it and it began to feel like something that we could accept and it felt like the right thing for us, I guess. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of odd because, you know, I'm in this infertility world and yet I've never gone through treatments. I haven't taken Coleman. I haven't done <laughs> all true. of that. Oh my God, that's I'm really true. I'm kind of this ginormous anomaly when I think about it. But 
once we felt like it could be something that we could come to peace with, we decided to move in that direction and decide that we were going to be child free after infertility and, you know, begin essentially like our healing process yeah. because we knew we were going to grieve. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about grieving. How, sure. how was that process for you? I mean, it's ongoing. Yeah. It, it doesn't end. There are still days that are like hurtful and, you know, triggers. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the ball in the box theory of grief, but that, that really no. resonates for me. Oh, oh okay. So this that? is a good one. So Yay. if you were to imagine <laughs> that there's a ball in a box and in the box is a button and every time the button gets pushed, it causes pain in your grief. Mm. Initially, after a traumatic event, the ball is rolling around the box and it's big. So it hits the button a lot you know, pretty often. Mm -hmm. But as you get further and further away from the traumatic event, the ball begins to shrink. Hmm. And so it's still rolling around in the box, but it isn't as big anymore. So it doesn't hit the button as often, but it still hurts when it does. Wow. So for me, it really resonates that yes, time, you know, kind of makes things feel less, you know, the pain isn't on the surface as much. It isn't as ever present as it was initially. Right. But it's still under the surface and there are still things that are going to make my pain ball <laughs> hit <laughs> the button and I'm going to have that pain of grief. And so understanding that grief isn't linear is also helpful. Mm. Um, but, you know, I went to therapy. I started seeing a therapist pretty shortly after we were diagnosed because I was like, I'm going to need to, even if we ended up parenting somehow or something changed for us, I knew that there was going to be a sense of grief. You there's a grieving of the assumption that you're going to marry this person that you love and you're going to make a baby and it's going to be easy. You know, mm -hmm. you lose that sense of the innocence and ease of becoming a parent. So I think that was probably the best thing I did was finding myself a therapist really quickly. And she's, she's wonderful. <laughs> so, oh, do you still see her? I don't still see her, but we mm -hmm. have kept in touch. So um, I've graduated from her three times now. <laughs> the, the initial, the initial, you know, okay, we're, I think I saw her pretty straight, probably for a good two and a half years. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, in, initially it was like every week, every other week, and then we kind of spanned it out a little bit more. And um, so I graduated and then my friend from high school that I was close with got pregnant. And so I oh went my back. God. Right back in. Yeah. <laughs> right back in. Right back in. And you know, that was only a couple sessions, I think, kind of to work through some of that. And then when my sister got pregnant, I went oh. back. So that was that was a tough one. Yeah. And I'm just curious to pause a second on Sweet Grapes. What was in there that really struck a chord with you? It's co-written by a couple named Jean and Michael Carter. And they basically go through their whole process. They did have like much more of an infertility journey than mm. we did. They did do some treatments, but they talked a lot about just things that you think of as like, well, if we don't have kids, we'll have no one to take care of us. Well, that you're not really guaranteed to have anyone take care of you mm -hmm. when you're older. You know, they talked a lot about how they came to peace. Like they went on a vacation to kind of just, you know, close that chapter. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing that actually really resonated with me that sounds incredibly counterintuitive is she got an IUD. Hmm. And she did that because she felt like she needed to know what life was going to look like 
And that really resonated with me because all this time that we were kind of like leaving it open for something to happen, you're still on the roller coaster of, is my period going to come? You know, did we defy all the chances and did something happen? For that whole second year, it was just, you know, still crushing every time. And so I talked to my husband and I was in therapy at the time and I talked to my therapist as well. And I went back to my OBGYN and discussed that option with her. And I feel like I had researched it well and knew that that would bring me a sense of peace and a sense of calm and get me off the roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And so I did end up getting an IED. Um, Wow. Yeah. That marked a different point in the whole thing for me because, like I said, I wasn't on the roller coaster anymore. Right. It was just, okay, this is life, you know, <laughs> like I don't have to second guess every month. Exactly. And I know it's it was, for me as well, it was a very long time before I could stop paying attention to my cycle and looking mm-hmm. at what date it was and when I had my last period. And in fact, I had a drawer in the kitchen filled to the brim with like syringes and suppositories and leftover this and that and gauze and, you know, alcohol swabs. And I mean, the whole nine yards. And it took me about a year to pack up and throw out that drawer. I didn't, you Mm -hmm. know what I think it was? I was done. I couldn't even bring myself to open the drawer and, you know, look at that stuff. And then I remember that day I finally packed, we actually moved and I had to close the drawer and clear it out. And it was very painful for me. I still had not healed from it. So I think it's amazing that you took that step because it's that declaration of this is the decision. I, again, I'm empowered by my choices Mm -hmm. and I am making that choice to shut the door and move forward. Exactly. And I did do that with the caveat that if I freaked out before I turned 35, <laughs> we could <laughs> we could take the IUD out and see what happened. Right. But yeah. We never have revisited it. So I feel like that was it was the right decision for us. And what is your so do you have nieces and nephews? I do. I have oh. three nephews and Wow. Uh yeah, and uh we're going to have a niece in June. Wow. So your sister's been pregnant several times. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. And is it different for you each time or what is that experience like? Oh, gosh. (laughs) So when my sister first got pregnant, um, she told me via email, which was very thoughtful of her. And I threw my phone across the room and then picked it up and called my therapist. So Um, wait, are you being facetious that it was thoughtful or it truly was because it gave you the opportunity? She gave you your space to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's it's email is better than text, Um, you know on the phone or face-to-face is like, you don't feel free to have your reaction right? Um, because someone's watching and text is like, maybe someone's got their red notifications on or something. Oh gosh, you know, right. Text can be kind of hard. So email is just a, a nice way of, you know, putting it out there and like, there's no confirmation that it was seen or anything like that. So that was the most thoughtful thing that she could do. Mm-hmm. Um, And it was hard. So at the time, she didn't live that far away from me in the Phoenix area, but I saw her three times throughout her pregnancy. Um, We initially got together for lunch and then um, at her baby shower. And then um, my first nephew was born three days after my birthday. So my sister was very, very pregnant at my birthday party that year. So yeah. So I mean, it was really, really hard. I, I struggled a lot with how am I going to be able to go to family functions and see this baby and or my parents, um, you know, will never have grandchildren from me. Mm. There was a lot that went into it. Was um, it also maybe like, why does she get to carry the family traits on and I don't, that kind of thing? Because I had that with my sister. 
No, it wasn't that so mm. much. It was just really painful to think of her pregnant. And I guess it was almost like I felt like I didn't contribute anything to the family. Oh, you know, wow. not that like carrying on the traits or anything, but like I struggled with what my value was in the family if we didn't have children. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. So it was really hard. And, you know, looking back on it with conversations with my mom, I think we're all extremely relieved that the worst didn't happen, which was I wouldn't be able to, you know, be around my family or be around my sister and my nieces and nephews. And instead, what happened is the second I saw that baby, now you're going to hear my ugly cry voice. Uh, (laughs) This is why the the cameras are off. Yeah. (laughs) The second I saw that baby, I just fell in love. I mean, it's... I obviously still get emotional thinking about it Um, and everything changed. And I started going to see my nephew every week. Um, Every week I would leave work and a little bit early and I would go to my sister's house and spend a few hours playing and holding my nephew. And we did that every single week, except for if I was sick or traveling. Wow. Um, How old is he now? He will be seven July 1st. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when he first was born, had you already gotten the IUD? Had you already made that choice? Yeah, that was a couple of years out. Yep. Yeah. And obviously, since I saw my nephews every week, um, you know, for the last almost seven years now, two more nephews were added to the family in that time, which means that my sister was pregnant two more times. I know. Now, what was that like? It was hard, um, but it wasn't as hard because I knew that at the end of it, I was going to get this new little person that I would love. (laughs) Sometimes people will want to um, apologize or, you know, kind of almost protect me, which is, you know, a very thoughtful thing that they do. And my response is kind of like, don't flatter yourself. You're not my sister. (laughs) 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 Like Nothing will ever hurt or be as difficult as my sister's first pregnancy. So, wow. Yeah. Um, and where was your husband at that time? I mean, where was he? I know where he was, but <laughs> what, you know, while you were suffering like that, was he also feeling similar? He's always just been the one who held me up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you kind of asked about like healing. During this time also, I decided, well, you know what, I'm going to go and have a great career then too. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of in this like kind of boring job that was stable and would have been fine. I didn't have to travel or anything. It wasn't difficult. So if we had children or we were parenting, it wasn't going to be a difficult job to have. And then I decided, well, I'm going to go make a bigger career for myself. So that was part of my healing also, I guess, was doing something for myself. Mm -hmm. And he's just always been super, super supportive. Um, One of my last jobs at this giant global conglomerate company that I worked with, I had to travel. I was away from home for two weeks every quarter Mm. and internationally as well. Wow. And he's just always been like, go get it. <laughs> you know, that's like, great. Yeah. He, I don't think he felt like he needed to be a dad as much as I pictured myself being a mom. Mm. So I, I think our decisions were, you know, in some ways easier for him. But yeah, he's just always been a great support to me. And he's by my side with <laughs> everything that goes on, all the grieving and stuff. And he knows he can see it on my face if we're out somewhere not now because there's a global pandemic but right um, <laughs> which, which works in your favor a little bit right now I'm just it does kidding. work in my favor yeah. a little bit there's a couple good yeah. things you about know, COVID he, yeah <laughs> yeah he knows what's gonna possibly trigger me or set me off I remember one time I was gonna be starting a new job at a new company and he was like remember they're gonna ask you if you have kids mm. and I hadn't thought about it so he's just always that super thoughtful kind of rock yeah yeah Did he have his own grieving process once it was all said and done? I I don't 
we didn't talk about his so much mm-hmm. because he was like his concern was always for how I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I think his process was also wrapped up in making sure that I was okay. And do you, did you then or do you still hit the people that completely miss the mark? Do you have those moments where people just say the worst, most annoying things? You know, I don't, I guess the good thing is like being so far out from it now, like yeah. it doesn't really come up as often. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, And that's not a trigger for you if somebody says something. Because one thing I kept running into before we stopped was nobody wanted me to stop. So they mm. just kept saying, well, what if this and what if that? And, you know, and I've even done storytelling events talking about how we stopped. Yeah. And people come up to me afterwards and they're trying to give me their, you know, Coca Pelli doll to put under my pillow. <laughs> or, and I was like, oh. we're so far gone with that at this point. Like, this yeah. is, you know, and it, it really just kind of, made my blood boil and and or I had people say, well, thank God you don't have kids. Guess what we went through this morning? He was up at 6 a.m. I mean, have you hit those as well? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. People don't want you to stop because they feel like if you keep going, you'll eventually get what you want. Well, we decided that what we wanted was to be happy as a family of two. Exactly. Someone once was like, you know, I'll be praying for you and we'll have hope for you. And First of all, I'm an atheist, so. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) me too, yeah. super comforting (laughs) for me. I think it's more for you, but whatever. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I stopped them and I just said, you know what, if you're going to hope for something for me, hope for us to have a happy and peaceful marriage because Mm -hmm. that's what's meaningful to me. Like, Yeah, and it's funny. I have a note. Let's talk about being happy. That's that's (laughs) the question I have. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of people inside and outside the infertility world, they think it's impossible to be truly happy Mm -hmm. if you can't be a parent. Yeah. And so I would love for you to talk about that concept of being happy, all the things you can do and all (laughs) the ways in which you can shape your life and, you know, the money and the career and the dogs. Oh my goodness, your dogs are adorable. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I believe that it is possible to be truly happy without having children. Um, And I feel like it's, it's such, I know I'm like telling you to talk and then I don't (laughs) shut up. Um, I wonder so much how much of that is real in terms of what we really want and what we really need to be happy. You know, if we all grew up on a desert island with no other people, would we suddenly need to have kids? Or is this something we've been watching on TV since we were born and, you know, we feel like we're supposed to have kids? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what? That didn't end <laughs> in a question. question. I'm sorry. No. I just needed to say all of those things at once. But <laughs> that's where I feel like people who choose child free, like from the outset, are viewed as like so brave because they're like kicking the societal norm to the curb. So, so was there this moment where it sounds like sweet grapes, just literally based on the title alone, probably <laughs> helped enormously with this? But was there that moment where you were like, oh, there's a real happiness that's available without having children? Yeah. It wasn't like one single moment, but it just kind of built and we're a family, you know, just the two of us. And everyone always is like, when are you going to start a family is something that you hear so often. And it's like, we need to normalize that two people who make a loving home are a family too. Do Do you think maybe sometimes you and your husband have a stronger relationship than couples that have kids because you have more time for each other? Yeah, because we're not parenting, we can focus on each other. Raising children is stressful and you have to, 
you know, you're not the center of your partner's world anymore. And because we're not parenting, there are so many things that we get to do and, you know, that we wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise. I've gotten to go and build my career. I got to travel. I wouldn't have the bandwidth to be the aunt that I am to my nephews. Mm. That was a big one for me. And that was actually a really comforting one because that gave me a way to have an impact in a, a small person's life mm-hmm. without parenting myself. You know, I, I get to volunteer and do all of these things. Who knows if I'd be able to go to Washington, D.C. for Advocacy Day with Resolve every year if I was parenting. There's an endless list, honestly, of right things that we have the resources and freedom to do because those resources aren't being spent on parenting and raising a child. Yeah. Do you ever feel relieved that you don't have kids? Like, it, this is sort of like a quick example, but if you're on a plane and there's a child going apeshit behind you, did you ever have a moment of like, ooh, oh, <laughs> I don't know I, how to deal with that? Yes. I think where my sense of relief comes in is like the mommy wars, you know, oh, like, oh, how you choose to parent, and you know, vaccinating or not vaccinating, breastfeeding oh or God. not feeding, um, baby led weaning, like all the decisions that a parent has to make to raise their child. It seems like some of them are so controversial and people get very judgmental. And yeah. I think that's where my relief is, is that I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> that is such a good point, though. It's a whole it's a whole language of stress and anxiety that you don't have to participate in. Mm hmm. When you empower yourself by making those positive choices, as you were saying, you also can take the win whenever possible, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, so exactly like you're saying, I don't have to worry about vax, anti-vax. I don't have to, th- I mean, with COVID, yes, but, you know, I don't, with the kids, I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about the fact that, you know, there's lead in Croc shoes or whatever the <laughs> thing. I'm totally making that up. That is yeah. not a thing. Please do not sue me, Crocs. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. all of those moments in life that can be hugely anxious making. And just like you said, judgy, Mm -hmm. you are literally just like, bye-bye, you know, you just (laughs) don't have to be part of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I I think Uh, that's crucial. That's a, that's a really big plus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It really is. (laughs) And as far as triggers, I'm assuming baby showers are probably still a trigger. (laughs) Yeah. Baby showers. It's an interesting thing because it feels so ironic. I don't want to be left out. I want to be invited. Mm-hmm. I want to be wanted there to support you. But I'm going to need you to accept the fact that I'm not going to be there. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to be left out. You know, I kind of decided that there were three baby showers that I for sure had to go to. My sisters, mm-hmm. my sister-in-laws, and my best friend from high school. And I did those, except my sister-in-law and brother-in-law don't have children. But I went to those. And then after that, it was like on a case-by-case basis. And I have been to a couple of baby showers after that. I generally prefer if they're going to have mimosas or something. I was going to say, if they've got good food and nice cocktails. Yeah. yeah. What just, are the giveaways? Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, yeah. I've learned how to, you know, game that system too. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's just... Some I go to and some I don't. And there's been a couple that I planned to go to. And then the day of, I was just like, this is not, I'm not in the right headspace for this. I'm not going to do it. I just, I feel very thankful that I have friends that don't take it personally, that it's not something about them. Um, I know that not everyone has that kind of support or that understanding, but I've just always been very upfront about, I have to do what's right for me, my self-care mm-hmm. and my comfort is first. And I. 
I can't choose any other way. So, you know, I might regret not going, but if I'm so anxious that I can't even get myself in the car, that is not going to be a good situation for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And was this something that you found on your own, this idea of of self-care or did that come through therapy or resolve or where did that come from? That was through therapy. My therapist was really amazing about helping me set my boundaries. You know, even if they weren't for anyone else, just my boundaries. Like, I didn't tell anyone that those were the three baby showers that I was going to go to. But in my head, that was all I had to commit to. Mm. And anything beyond that was my choice. Like my sister's baby shower, for instance, was in our hometown, which is Tucson, Arizona, which is a two-hour drive from where I live. And we made a plan. She was great with helping me make plans. We made a plan that my husband would come down with me and he and my dad would go do, I don't know, guy things somewhere. And if I ever felt like, okay, this is too much, I need to get out of here, they would come and get me. They were on call. (laughs) They were on call. And so I made it through. I Present opening is really, really difficult when everyone's ooing and aahing over tiny baby clothes. So I left before she opened gifts. So they came and got me and we went to Applebee's, I think, (gasps) and had appetizers and beers. So, Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, just... That was part of my self-care was knowing what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not and avoiding what is going to really be the hard stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, I had two cousins younger than me, much younger than me, um, both pregnant at Thanksgiving one year. We have like 30 to 40 people in Philly every year meet up Mm -hmm. and it's a huge family thing. And two of my younger cousins were days from delivering. So they were like nine months pregnant, but then they weren't there, which I was so happy that they weren't (laughs) there. And by the way, I adore these cousins. So, you know, as you know, how you have a sense of relief. (laughs) Oh my God. Well then at the second day they were like, Oh, we're going to FaceTime the two cousins and see them be all pregnant. And (laughs) And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I thought I escaped this thing. And (laughs) Not only that, but we're in this presidential suite that's just the name of like the top floor of this um, hotel in Philly with giant flat screen TVs, one at either end of the room so that whether you're facing one way or the other, everyone can watch the game or whatever is on the TV. So suddenly 30 people, 40 people looking at giant flat screens on both sides. There's not an (laughs) angle you can sit at where you don't see them. And they FaceTime these two cousins. And I literally like, it was like a cartoon. Like I backed out of the room around the corner into the bathroom, (laughs) closed the door and just sat on the tiles and cried and waited for it to be over. Not a single person noticed I was gone, which was so interesting too, because it was like, thank God no one saw me be a wuss, but also why didn't anyone notice that I had to leave the room? You know, so it is that, that sense of isolation and sort of otherness is, I think, what sets me off. That's my trigger. Yeah. Um, Feeling like you're alone in that moment and no one else is understanding what you're going through. No one's understanding. And you're like, thank God I'm away from that. But but why don't I get to be part of that? And wh- mm-hmm. they need to want me to, you know. And then at the same time, I would imagine, do people walk on eggshells around you? Do you get a sense some of the time that they sort of, they correct themselves or they avoid things, you know, mentioning kids stuff or something? I think in the beginning, maybe not so much now. Um, mm. The way I talk about it is so different. 
like, well, that's true. You're very open about it too. Yeah. I think there's people that they they are child free by choice or not by choice, um, and they won't. They don't talk about it. Not that they have to, but you know, they don't talk about it for whatever the reason is, and then nobody knows whether they can talk about it or yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Early on, it was like you know, I was I wasn't ever ashamed, but it felt so much like airing my personal business. <laughs> Yeah. Especially oh, as we were going through it, you know, just while it was fresh and raw, I didn't really talk about it a lot. If people asked if we had kids, I would just say, no, it wasn't in the cards. And, you know, <laughs> then the other day, someone asked what I was doing this weekend at work. And I was like, oh, I'm filming a podcast. We're <laughs> 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 recording a podcast. And they're like, oh, what's it about? I was like, oh, infertility. And I just like <laughs> left it at that. Just like, <laughs> and that's how that coworker found out that I don't have kids because I put two and two together. Right. I feel like if you're out and open about it, people will be less on eggshells. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also really comfortable with correcting people when they say something that's fucked up. <laughs> like, oh, that's good. Like I have, you know, people have said like, did you try to have kids? Why didn't you have kids? Why didn't you keep trying? And I was like, that's none of your business. <laughs> Like, oh wow, that's good. Shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not afraid to just kind of shut it down. Um but that comes like I said, that comes with time and feeling empowered. I would not have been able to be that bold while we were going through it. And now I mm. just kind of I don't really give any fucks anymore. <laughs> I yeah. guess I talk about it so much. It's become part of like my normal life. And so I'm absolutely fine talking about different aspects of infertility, you know, obviously my story, but it's like when you start asking questions about unsolicited questions, you know, about, you know, my home life or my private life with my husband, like that's where I draw my boundary with people I don't know. Oh, yeah. And so I'm curious to kind of shift gears a little bit into um, helping people, which is something that you are very passionate about doing. When did you come into working with Resolve and and kind of what are the different roles you've played in, in helping people through Resolve? So right around the same time I started seeing my therapist, I also found Resolve and went to a support group meeting. Mm. So at that first meeting, the leader announced that she was going to be moving and they needed someone to take over. And I was like, sure, I'll lead the group, you know, because it was really just a lot of (laughs) your first day, Yeah, my first day, like, sure, I'll just, I'll just take over. Because that first meeting was really us, you know, sitting around and just talking. And so it just felt very much like, well, all I have to do is like, send out the email and plan to like, hey, everyone come sit at, you know, Panera Bread, and you know, we'll chat for a couple hours. So Mm. I didn't probably know what I was getting myself into. But um, so I did take over that and I did it for about three years, I think. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything with Resolve, I kind of like, I start out as a participant, I volunteer, and then I go like zero to 60 and then I'm in charge of the thing. In 2013, <laughs> I discovered the Arizona Walk of Hope, which is one of their big fundraisers every year. And this is a Resolve fundraiser? It is a Resolve fundraiser. Yeah. Okay. And so I went to that. And then the next year I volunteered and then the next year I was the chair of the event and I chaired the event for a couple of years, I think. Gotcha. Um, And so in 2013, there was um, a bill in Arizona that um, was very anti-family or anti-family building. Mm. And so they were talking about going to Resolve's Advocacy Day. So yeah, so what is Advocacy Day? So Advocacy Day is a federal fly-in. It's at the federal level. You're at the U.S. Capitol and people come from all over the country 
Um, and Resolve is extremely well organized. They also work with ASRM, which is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. It's a joint event. So it's just a really inspiring event. I remember after the first one I went, I was hooked like immediately. Yeah. So I was actually the chair of the event in Washington, D.C. for two years. Wow. Um, I now get to take a step back and just be a regular participant again. Um, but yes, there's not very many people who've had the experience of going to Washington, D.C. and walking the halls. Oh, there's an ugly face cry again. Um, <laughs> like walking the halls and looking up at the rotunda at some point in the day and just being there in that moment and doing something so empowering, literally going to your legislator and saying, here's what I need you to help me with. And here's how you can help. And it's just absolutely amazing. I, I love it. <laughs> I'll never That's not amazing. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting to me, too, that from the day of your first meeting at Resolve, mm-hmm. you began to help people as well. So while you were getting help, you were also helping people immediately yeah. and increasingly so, obviously, over the years and also having had more experience to pull from when you help people. Um, do you feel like maybe that's a part of your healing as well? Absolutely. Yeah. It's something I can control. Yes. So when you're struggling with infertility, even though we made our choice, it's something I can control. It's something I can do that I feel like I can be productive. You know, I we made our choice. I'm not there for me. Mm-hmm. I'm there for my nephews and my future niece and, mm-hmm. you know, all these other kids and everyone who's finding out that they're have the disease of infertility, I'm there to make it so that if they struggle with infertility when they decide to build their families, hopefully it'll be easier. Hopefully it will be far less expensive. It'll be more accessible. We're there Mm -hmm. for the next generation. So it feels like something that I can leave behind, even though, you know, I'm not gonna (laughs) like contribute to the world with having children of my own. I can contribute in this way and make something easier for someone else. Yeah, which is, which also kind of feeds mm-hmm. your soul, I Abs- think, yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think the idea of nurturing people and causes and life improvements for people is something that's in all of us. And, you know, some of us nurture a person, mm-hmm. a human child, and some of us nurture a whole generation yeah. of people or a whole generation of policymaking, and, which I yeah. think is great. Um, and so I'm curious... Um, this is one of the things I was thinking about, too, as I was kind of putting questions together for you. It was very hard to find someone who's child free who mm-hmm. could talk about it, not even whether they wanted to or not, but who could yeah. talk about it, first of all. And then if they wanted to, um, this may be obvious, but why do you think that is? I think that's probably because they have trauma. Mm. Because we came to our decision, you know, kind of, like I said, as an anomaly, having not done treatments, I don't have that trauma. Talking about it doesn't remind me of the IVF cycles that failed. Um, You know, it doesn't remind me of those struggles. It just reminds me of a decision that I came to with my husband and the grief that we went through. So I guess my Mm. assumption would probably be that going Mm -hmm. through however many years of treatments, it's just, it's a lot harder to fathom talking about it when that means that you have to relive all of that. Which doesn't mean, again, that they can't be happy, they can't find happiness, but to sort of open that box back up, (laughs) to bring back that metaphor, is not something that a lot of people want to do. Yeah, it seems like everyone deals with this grief in their own ways, and they're all valid. 
some people talk about it. Some people just never feel like they can talk about it or they don't have a desire to. And those are valid choices. Yeah, no, they are. <laughs> I absolutely. wish people would talk about it because it helps destigmatize. But I absolutely respect that some people just cannot revisit that. Yeah. You have to do what's best for you. Absolutely. So how can people with loved ones who have become through hell or high water, child free, uh-huh. how can they be good loved ones to those people? Is there any kind of general advice you can give to those people, family members, friends, and so on? So I think one thing that is important is don't feel like you have to solve it Mm. or don't feel like you have an idea they haven't thought of. Like, trust me, we didn't opt for adoption, but we considered it. There isn't a route of family building that we didn't consider. Um, so, you know, offering unsolicited advice <laughs> yeah. is our ass vice, maybe. <laughs> like, Did you say ass vice? Yeah. I just wanted to say vice. that again really clearly because that's the greatest. That is literally the greatest thing I've ever heard for all kinds of ass vice. That is yeah. amazing. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No one wants your ass vice. No one wants your um, ass vice. I'm going to get a shirt that says that. No one wants your ass vice. I think we vice. just named the podcast episode. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We did. That is the greatest thing. So it's just better to listen. Like it is human nature to want to fix and to want to ease pain. But the very best thing that you can do as a friend or family member is just say, I'm sorry, that sounds really hard. Let me know how I can support you. Mm -hmm. That's it. Validate the feelings and let them know that you're there is just the absolute best thing that a person can do Mm -hmm. to show you their love. That's wonderful. In my opinion. In my opinion. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, So we've come to my favorite part of the conversation, which is your dogs. You have the most amazing dogs. They are puggles. They are so cute. So this is, they are a huge part of your family. Um, Tell me about the dogs. Yeah. So we've got Paisley, Clover, and Sparrow, and they are (laughs) our joy and our... They're what we spend our money on. Yes, as they should be. Yes. Do you go to like the dog bakery and get them little cupcakes and stuff like that? I don't, but they Uh, have a miniature living room within my living room. Oh, that's right. You showed me the picture. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was kind of my pandemic, like mental break. (laughs) Is it doll furniture? Where is that? There's like a sofa and a lamp. It's... Yeah, it's it's a dog sofa. So originally we were looking to like replace one of their old dog beds. So I was like, how funny would it be to get like a couch? So I get this couch and it came. I was did you Google dog sofa or how did you find it? It was on Amazon. Yeah. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah. So um it came and my husband was at work and I get this like crazy little giddy idea that like I could make this look like a tiny living room. I went to Target and I got like a tiny little miniature plastic plant. They have like an end table or a side table, I'm sorry, which is actually just a wooden tissue box oh my God. cover that's just like has the plant on it. They've got a rug and I put a lamp there and then he got home and saw it. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. He thought I had absolutely lost my fucking mind. <laughs> but then he went all in. And he decided that they should have wall art. I thought so, because there's like a little picture hanging on the wall, too. Yeah. So, oh my God. So genius. And do they actually hang out in there? Like, do they know it's their space? It's literally just a corner of my living room that looks like a miniature living room. Oh, 
<laughs> My God. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, is there anything that you would like to add just at the end? Anything you want to say to people who are considering this choice or maybe the choice has been foisted upon them and they're wondering how they're going to move forward? I think you had talked a lot about being happy. And I think it's important for me, having chosen this, to reiterate that you can be happy. It might not be today, it might not be next year, but if you can find peace, you can also find happiness. Mm. Um, And there's many, many things like I was talking about, you know, the things that we wouldn't have the bandwidth or the resources for if we were parenting, there will be those upsides for you too. That's (laughs) really important. I'm also always happy to, you know, if someone wants to reach out to me, I don't care. You could have my email address. Can we say your email address? I'll give you my resolve one. It's rook.resolve at gmail.com. Fabulous. This is so wonderful. (laughs) Thank you so much, Brooke. I'm so happy that we've connected and I am so grateful for all your perspectives on this. And, um, and you're just fabulous. <laughs> oh, so are you. I look, you. I look forward to a wonderful friendship. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with Brooke and me. I love her for showing us a whole different kind of happy. I highly recommend checking out resolve.org to learn more about the resources, advocacy events, and opportunities for community involvement. And if you haven't heard yet, we're gearing up for a very special season two finale featuring my own therapist, Savannah Sanfield, who specializes in the struggles of infertility, adoption, and more. Anything you want to ask, submit via email to ivfupodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at ivfupodcast by 1111. The IVFU podcast is produced by me, Sam Shaper, and Emmeline Summerton. Audio mastered by Logan Heftel. Thanks to Chris Benelli for the late night Pro Tools parties, George Strayton for marriage, and Gary Scott for greasing the wheels. IVFU is a production of Inside Voices Media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at IVFU Podcast. You can download our theme song, Freakin' Love, at ivfupodcast.com. And we'd love for you to review us on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to anyone who might be helped by these conversations. You can also be a huge help by leaving us a tip of any size, whatever you can afford, on Venmo and paypal.me at ivfupodcast. Thank you. And thanks for listening. I'm happy we shared this time together because it's all about being a family. family.